0: So please be praying. I mean, we have an absolute ton of people missing. Please be praying for their travels. A lot of them are driving across the country or states away or they're going to the beach or they're going to Florida, they're coming back. Just be praying for their safety, okay? Be praying that they're alert at the wheel, that there's no problems with the vehicle. Um, We have a lot of sick people too, so be praying for that. Um, Some of you have already been talking to some who are sick. Just be praying for their health in this season as the seasons change, Um, This is typically the portion of the service where Hillary will have somebody come up, or she herself will come up and talk about um, the city, or where their faith is meeting the real world, what the gospel looks like unpacked in their own spheres. I'm going to speak to you a little bit today just because it's Memorial Day weekend. And I don't think Memorial Day is something that we really celebrate or talk about very often. And if you don't even know what it is, right, because we kind of just celebrate it as another one of our three-day weekends, Memorial Day is a day that honors and commemorates those who have given their life in service, right? And here's the thing. We typically take something like that and we can be polarized on a day like this because of our political affiliations, right? What I mean by that is, is there are some who think that we should not be in places in the world that we are currently in, wars we should not be involved in, I'm just gonna say regardless of whatever your political affiliation is, this is a beautiful day to commemorate and to honor those who have done something very Christ-like, something very Christ-shaped in giving their life for us, that we benefit at their cost. I think that's one of the reasons that people that are even against war might honor a soldier because there's something attractive in the idea of sacrifice. There's something that's beautiful in the idea of, I'm gonna lay my life down so that you benefit. I'm gonna give up my freedoms, I'm gonna sacrifice even the things most dear to me, possibly even my own life, so that you benefit and that you grow, right? So I was thinking about this and just praying this morning and I pulled this quote out of a book that I read a couple years ago. I have a great uncle who was a chaplain in the U.S. Army. He did three tours in Vietnam, and then he wrote a couple books, and one of them was just kind of detailing his journey through Vietnam, through all three tours, and this is one of the things he says. His name is uh, Walter Tucker. He uh, He lives in Arkansas right now. He says, in my lifetime, I have dug ditches, picked and chopped cotton, daylight to dark, I've swung a pick and a splitting wedge for hours at a time. I've wept with friends in hospital rooms and conducted hundreds of funeral services. But taking the most distressing of news to family members, especially during wartime, made all the other physical and emotional experiences appear calm by comparison, right? Telling somebody that they've lost somebody in battle, someone that they love, husband, it could be wife, it could be parents, it could be daughters, it could be sons, letting somebody know that you've lost someone that you've treasured in battle. See, when somebody dies in battle, when someone has given their life on the battlefield, it's not just the soldier who's given, who feels life taken away. It's the people right around him as well, right? As my uncle so so eloquently said. So I thought maybe we could pray not just for veterans, not just for those who um, who have, uh, are just out of Thanksgiving for those who have given their life, but even for those who are connected, family members of those who Memorial Day is just another day that kind of maybe pulls the, the band aid off of the pain that they feel because they've lost somebody, right? It's a three day weekend to most of us, agreed. Some of you are going to the lake. Most of us are already at a lake or a beach house. We're enjoying a three day weekend. It's not always fun for a lot of people. So maybe we could pray for our city this morning before we start. So, Father, we thank you for being sweet to us, and we thank you, Father, for the original story of our original hero who laid his life down so that we might benefit, that we get to live in a sort of freedom as children and the light, as we are grafted into a beautiful family and as we have royalty running through our veins, Lord. We have that not because of our works, but because of your work and because of what you have done for us. So first and foremost, we thank you for that. And Lord, we even notice and we celebrate how that is honored in other men and women who have given their life in battle. So Lord, regardless of whether we should be in a place of the world or not, regardless of all the politics that swirl around, Lord, we're thankful for people. We're thankful for people who would lay their life down. Lay their life down for people that they don't even know their names. They don't even know my name. And we just ask that your grace minister to them on a day or minister to the family members on a day like today where they woke up this morning and they don't have a brother or a sister or a husband or a wife or a son or a daughter they don't have them anymore or a parent or we're thankful for you first and foremost and we just ask that you administer to these families so lord we love you we're very thankful and it's in your name we pray amen amen okay listen if you have a bible or a device go ahead and turn to Matthew six. We are going to finish a series today. We're kind of kind of finish it. Next week's passage is going to actually double dip. It's going to probably put a bow on this Sermon on the Mount series we've been walking through and it's actually going to kick off the next series. The next series you guys are absolutely going to love, I think. You're going to you're going to be excited about it. But Matthew 6 is going to show us Christ more clearly. And I think, and this is gonna sound odd, so hear me out, I think a couple neurobiologists are gonna help us understand this text much more clearly as well. There's two scientists in London that studied the biology of the brain, and they found through a lot of documented experimentation, and I actually read, I'm a big nerd when it comes to neurobiology, But I I did a lot of study behind how they did the experiments and how awesome the the results came out. And what they showed is that we experience, you and I, we experience a release of a chemical called dopamine. Okay, And I know three of you just fell asleep as soon as I said the word dopamine, right? (laughs) Because you're not a nerd when it comes to this. I'll explain what it means here in a moment. But we experience a triggered release of dopamine whenever we are exposed to something new, something shiny, something novel. Okay, Dopamine is what is, um, I guess, more colloquially called the reward chemical. It's the thing that you feel whenever you feel rewarded or something that maybe you felt entitled and you feel that flush of accomplishment. It's why whenever if some of you you keep to do lists or task lists, it's that that flood of emotion you feel whenever you check a couple things off. Right. You feel like you've just gotten somewhere. It's actually why some of you, if you've done something that is not on the task list, you will write it on the task list and then check it off because you're hacking the system. You're flooding your system with dopamine. You might not have even known that you were doing that. Some foods trigger a greater dopamine release than others, which is why at the end of a long day, at the end of a long week, and you're struggling and you're tired, you don't find yourself stretching your arm out for the bowl of broccoli, do you? But the bowl of Ben and Jerry's might do the trick. Higher dopamine release. That's why comfort food is comfort food, by the way, right? Amphetamines is one of the chemicals on earth that is known to trigger the most amount of dopamine into our bloodstream, right? Which is one of the reasons it's so addicting. Now, these two neurobiologists, they actually focus the majority of their research on dopamine's effect of learning, how we learn. And then this is where it gets fascinating for me. Turns out that when when you're in a new setting, maybe you're at a retreat center or you're on vacation or you find yourself in a new setting, if you take in new information, you actually retain it longer because everything is new around you. It actually has a learning effect. Dopamine does. Or um, if you're studying old material, let's say you're looping through the same boring 20 flashcards, right? All you have to do is insert two or three brand new flashcards in there, and you actually remember all of it a little bit better because of the newness of it, the novelty of it. So what we are finding out through study, through science, and I love it when science just catches up with one thing that God has already engineered in us from the very beginning, right? Science is just now catching up. But that new and shiny things affect us greatly, even biologically. Here's a quote out of the study, right? This is um, Emra Duzel. She says, the brain learns that the stimulus, once familiar, has no reward associated with it, and so it loses its potential. Only completely new objects activate the midbrain area and increase our levels of dopamine. Completely new. Only completely new. That totally makes sense to me. We hunt new and novel things, the shinier the better. We hunt them down all the time. Turns out we're actually biologically and I think brilliantly designed to do that, right? I remember I was talking to my wife and my kids about this the other day. I remember first moving to Florida from Texas in church plant number two, and I remember seeing these birds I'd never seen before. They're about this tall. They're, they're, I don't remember what kind of a crane it was. It looked like it was the cross between an ostrich and a flamingo, and, and they always walk in packs of like three or four, and they let out this archaic, Jurassic sound. I was fascinated with these animals. I would see them walk around, and if you squawk loud enough, they'll squawk back at you. So me and my kids, we'd always run out and start squawking at these animals, and they'd squawk back. And I loved these animals so much for about six months. Then after that, I wanted them to get out of the road because they would just stand in the road and look at you, and you'd have to hit the brakes, and you'd honk the horn, and they'd just squawk at you. They'd think you're squawking at them. So you'd honk the horn, they'd squawk at you, and just stand there. And I think, these things are so stupid. I wish they would just leave. They're in the way. Hey, it's the same thing with bears here. The first time you saw a bear in the Smokies, were you not just fascinated? I remember, I remember where I was in the Smokies. I felt like I was in a National Geographic shoot, right? I'm talking to total strangers. Do you see that bear? Like, i mean, tear running down my cheek. I'm so honored to be a part of this moment, right? Where this bear is there, which is as common as a dog almost now. And I'm so fascinated. And now I'm like, man, that dumb bear. I, have to, I can't even finish this trail. I gotta turn around and go back, right? I can't even run or hike this trail. Or if I'm camping, I'm thinking, you mean to tell me I got to pack all my food back in the car when I'm done with it tonight? That is such a pain. Why? Because new and shiny and novel things wear off over time, even the ones that we are so enamored with in the beginning, and we immediately start looking for new ones. We want new, new technology, new cars, new shoes, because what was old is old. And the novelty wears off over time. Turns out, God created our brains to respond to new and novel things. We respond to it. Now, it's going to be easy for us to misspend this biology. Because instead of hunting new revelations with the Lord, instead of finding Uh, a new angle, a new truth about God, something, a new aha moment in a passage that we've read a thousand times, sitting at the feet of Jesus on a Monday morning. And we're reading through something that, that, that dopamine release of, oh my goodness, I've never seen this before. We misspend it and we say, I really love this new phone, this new phone, my new shoes. It's easy for us to do this. God creates a reward system in all of us to propel us and provoke us to explore more, to learn more, to retain more, right? But sin does what sin does. Sin can find anything and bend it, bend even the beautiful things that God has created to where we glorify ourselves more than elevate his glory. So the reason I'm telling you all of this. Jesus is in the back half of his sermon that we've been calling the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first of four or five discourses or sermons in the book of Matthew. And he's done this brilliant job, as we've walked through it slowly, of describing what a distinct and different people look like, both in how we feel, how we think, even how we practice, how we're just different. We're a distinct people. A city that just can't be hidden, right? Or or a, a light in the middle of a dark room, showing the dark world where all the edges are what reality looks like we're different and today he's talking to us about our treasure our treasure and before we even jump into the passage can I just say this we'll define treasure today is all the stuff that we love the things and the money that we use to buy it all of it together we'll call all of it treasure the money we use to attain things and the things that we attain okay just to make it easy So Matthew 6, let's look at this. This is going to be the word of the Lord for us today. It's going to show us Christ very clearly, I believe. We're going to go down to verse 19. This is Christ speaking to us as well as them. He says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's talking to us about our treasure, things, things that we create out of creation, right? But we know from Genesis 3 that creation fights against us, right? It presses against us, it wars against us, right? We, we see this. God curses the earth. As quick as Genesis 3, saying, you will work, but the ground won't be agreeable. You'll produce, but it will be against the grain, right? Not only does this happen, but chaos enters the picture for the first time. I want you to understand there was no such thing as chaos in the garden before the fall. Everything was ordered. There was no disorder. So we see this thing arise in the garden after the fall of man called entropy, it's, I know these are a bunch of science. You're, you're thinking, is he going to stop with the science words? This is all entropy is. Entropy is just a movement, a progressive sometimes movement from order to disorder. Okay? And now we have it. Entropy is what happens to the paint job on your car. Right? It looks beautiful until it doesn't. Then the clear coat goes away. The paint starts to fade. Then you see exposed metal. Then it starts to rust. Then it's a big hole. Right? That is entropy that's there because of the sin of man by the way right same thing with your skin you're so young perfect skin right And then you get a little older it loses its elasticity it starts to sag it's, it gets splotchy and lumpy and grows hair and moles it's just it's entropy it's entropy it's had its effect on us sin and it's not just our skin it's not just us that starts falling apart everything we own as soon as you touch it It's already in a state of decay. Listen, everything you own is headed for a landfill. Everything. You don't have anything that's not gonna be in the trash. That's not gonna be in the garbage. Even if you sell it. You can sell it, you can leave it to somebody in a will. What are they gonna do with it? Even if they did the same thing, seven owners down the line, it's going in the trash. It will eventually be in the trash. You know, there was about six minutes that I was hooked on this television show um, called American Pickers, right? And then, and then by the seventh minute, I thought, wait a minute, I'm not really gonna like this show after all. But all it is is it's these two guys that have this pretty good chemistry and they drive all over the flyover states, right? And they're going from barn to barn, from ranch to ranch, and they're just looking for antiques that they could buy, pump some money into it, flip it, and sell it, right? And, and where do they find their treasures? In places that you and I would walk by and say, that's a bunch of, just a bunch of garbage over there right? But they would find it. They would find some Dairy Queen sign or something covered with 93 years of dust. They would take it. They would put, just put money into it. They would restore it. They would put hundreds into it. And then they would turn around and sell it for thousands. Even antiques end up in the dump. Whoever buys that is going to end up throwing it away. Or seven owners down the road. They're going to throw it away. Everything ends up in the trash. Listen, even that new cell phone you have, right? Didn't it feel good to get rid of the old cell phone and get the new and shiny one, right? Now you know that that was a real chemical response in you that loved that. When you were putting the new screen protector on, you were so careful, weren't you? And then you put the new case on it. You were so careful with where you put it. You know, everything was brand new. I was the same way. I was the same way. My very first phone I had in 1997 was a Motorola StarTAC. Y'all remember the StarTAC? It's nice. Carried it on my belt clipped in. I was super proud of it. Wanted everyone to know that it was, there it is. (laughs) Sports agents, mortgage bankers, and Luke Thomas had that on my braided leather belt because I wanted everybody to know. I love that phone. It was shiny and it was new. And then I couldn't stand it. Went to the Nokia, went to the Nextel phone, went to a bunch of Motorola phones. And then I got my first smartphone. There it My very. is. Y'all remember this one? I'm not even sure that Joker's a touch screen. I think, that's what, I think that's what this thing right here is, right? I think it's a little cursor mover or something. That so old, they just called it the droid. <laughs> it doesn't even have like letters or it's just the droid, right? And I loved it and I took care of it and I babied that thing. You know where those phones are right now? They're leaching some toxic chemical in the earth somewhere, right? Or they've grabbed some pieces out of it and they're smelting it and they're putting it at new phones in Thailand. That's where they're at. It's in the dump somewhere, Your clothes, your cars, your brand new laptop, your brand new TV, everything you own is falling apart. Entropy is having its way. It will go to the dump. American pickers will find it in 93 years. Okay? So what Jesus is saying in his sermon, don't wear yourself out stacking up treasures here in this land of rust and thieves. Don't do it. Don't do it. You're investing in the wrong place. But it never feels like that, does it? When we get something new. It's exhilarating to get new stuff. It's fascinating. We're drawn to, we get drunk on it, getting new stuff. And now we know a couple smart scientists in London have actually shown us why. Because it's really hard to compete with the new car smell, isn't it? It's hard to beat that. It's hard to beat a new pair of shoes. I'm a new shoes guy. Man, it used to be a new haircut and new shoes. You give me a new haircut, new shoes, I was a fresh guy. Now just shoes are going to have to work for me, right? (laughs) That stuff works. Dopamine wins. It's hardwired into our brains. And I think God brilliantly did it, that we would respond to new, brilliant things. But this is what the treasures of the world will do for you and me. It promises us that it will meet our needs. In fact, that it will complete us. That it will make you a better version of who you are right now. This is how advertising is set up, right? You're bombarded with about 5,000 ads a day. All of them are saying is you are just one step away from being a new you. That this old thing that you have, that's the thing that's holding you back, right? The thing that you're holding on to is actually holding you. But if you just shed that and get this, the bigger, better mattress, the better beer, the better yoga pants, the better phone, the better whatever. If you get the new thing, you will be a new you, a new you. You'll be complete and we buy it don't we we believe this i watch the same commercials you do i see on home depot the new table saw the one that shoots a laser down right there and i'm thinking that's the saw i need and then i look at my old table saw and i'm thinking that thing that's dangerous i don't even need to use that i need the new one because now i can see if i'm about to chop a finger off right or maybe you're like me if every time i buy a book i haven't even read the table of contents yet i already feel like i'm smarter. I'm closer to a better version of me just by buying the book. It's not even in my house yet. Amazon promises it will be there in a day or two, and I already feel better. I already feel more complete. Or I watch the ad on YouTube of the new version of the phone that I have, and then I look at my phone, and then I look at the new phone, and then I look at my phone, and then I look at the new phone. I believe it. Hear me. There is nothing wrong with purchasing table saws or shoes or phones, get them, get them all. Get them all in the same day if you want, right? What Christ is saying is not that treasure is bad. What he is saying is, is if you assemble a treasure chest here in this world in order to complete you, finish you, make you better, that's just not what his distinct people do. He says, not my people, not my people. This was tough news for his listeners back then. They had treasures just like you do. We think that they just had chickens and sticks and stuff. It's not true. They had treasures, right? They have treasures just like we do. They're tempted to invest in the wrong places just like we are. We invest in the wrong places because we want to be completed. We think we're incomplete here, and we think that treasure will complete us, and so we'll need money to feed that treasure so that it will complete us. And when we think about it, even in sermons like this, isn't it easy for us to say, this isn't a problem for me? I'm not serving treasure. I'm not serving money. Sure, I have money, and I have treasure, but it's serving me. I'm not serving it. Okay, maybe. Maybe not. There's a couple litmus tests that we could use because, friends, hear me, you could be investing in the wrong place. You'll primarily know if that thing, treasure or the money that gets you the thing right if that is threatened or taken away how does your heart respond how does your heart respond right or what does the rest of your life look like are you accommodating for that treasure are you building around it to the point where it's just obvious that is a treasure you're laying up here in this place these are diagnostic questions not just for treasures or money but really for any idol because that's ultimately what we're talking about is it not Idol worship. That's why Christ says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Hear me. If you just come undone, unstitched, because something has been taken from you, or even threatened, that is telling more truth than you might be telling yourself. Right? Put this in the YouTube search engine next time you get a chance. Parents destroying children's game consoles. It's fascinating. The top five videos have had over 50 million hits just in the last 18 months. This is what it is. Kids playing too many video games. Parents telling kids, stop playing video games. Kids deciding they're gonna keep playing anyway. Parents flip their lids. They don't know what to do. I'm not saying this is good parenting. I'm just saying it's on YouTube, okay? So they will get the game console and they will put a chainsaw to it. They'll throw the Xbox in the pool. They'll drive over the laptop with a car and what's what is fascinating and slightly disconcerting is how the kids react this is not what you see you don't see the kids going thanks mom god i was really struggling with that idol in my heart and i didn't even get grips on it until you destroyed that but now i'm free from being enslaved to that idol." that's not what you see they're going nuts they're pulling their hair out they're kicking holes in the wall they're screaming cuss words they're, they're packing their stuff to move out that's what you see And when we watch videos like that, we laugh out of one side of our mouth, and then out of the other side we say, what a moron. That kid, they need to get him in soccer or something like that. You know, we always say how dumb it is. Man, I'm telling you, you take the wrong treasure from me, I I could do the same thing. I'm capable of it. I'm capable of it. I think we all are capable of this. It's not just treasures it's money as well but let me tell you money is never really an idol it's just what we pay our idols it's what we give our idols all right it's the stuff that money buys that promises to complete us here on this planet and when those things are threatened or the money we need to get them our heart will react you will also know if you find yourself or those around you building a life around this treasure right That's why you see this odd-looking little passage in the middle of a passage that's kind of self-explanatory. I could have just read this, and we could have all just gone home. It really does its own heavy lifting. But there's one little blurb in the middle of this passage. It says this, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. I remember reading this as a new Christian thinking, that makes no sense at all. Like, I'm tired from reading that. Like, is there a better Bible version that says it in English, right? It's, it's like it's a Buddhist quote or something. It's like looping. I don't even know what it means. This is what he's saying right here, okay? Lamps. We don't really use lamps as much as we flip on a light switch or we use a, a flashlight. But we'll, we'll say flashlight. It shows you where you're going, Right? How many of you, you don't even use a flashlight, you just use your cell phone? I cell phone my way through more dark mornings in my household. Why? Because it's a minefield at my house. Little girl's flip-flops, my wife's purse, gym bag, shoes, edge of the piano. You want to know where that's at, you know? Chairs. The light helps me. It helps me see what's going on. Lamps guide us from bumping into things. It leads us through the darkness, right? This is what our eyes do for the body. This is why he says the eye is the lamp of the body, okay? Now, in the Bible, a healthy eye is seen as a generous person, a bad eye is seen as a stingy or miserly person. And I know it seems like I'm making a jump. We actually get that from another passage. We're just gonna briefly look at it because we don't have the time to just exegete a ton of different passages, but in Matthew 20, don't even turn there, I'm just going to tell you, you've seen and heard this parable before. It's the laborers in the vineyard, and the parable goes like this. A guy needs his vineyard taken care of, so people show up in the morning, and he says, I'll pay you a certain rate to take care of this vineyard. They do it, but people keep coming later in the day, and he just keeps hiring more help all the way till right before the paychecks are handed out. He's hiring help. Now, when they all show up to get their paycheck, that's when they realize they're all getting the same amount of money. That went over really well because the people that have been there all day are sunburned and tired and they got the same amount as the people that just clocked in a few hours earlier. And they're saying, hey, what's going on? That's not fair. That's not fair. This is what Christ says. He says in verse 15 of, of chapter 20, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? And here it is. Or do you begrudge my generosity? Now, in your Bible or on your app, there will oftentimes be an asterisk or a superscript or a subscript next to that because that is very correctly rendered out in a lot of other Bible verses where it says instead, or is your eye bad because I am good? Now, the reason it's not in your Bible is because that's odd language. We don't speak like that anymore. Or is your eye bad? I mean, it'd be weird for me to come up to you and say, hey, is your eye bad right now? got a bad attitude. It seems like your eye is bad. You'd think I was drunk or something. That doesn't even mean anything. But what Christ is saying is, is it your stinginess and selfishness that is accusing my generosity? Is it your greed that it has a problem with my generosity? That's all Jesus is saying here. So we see the difference between having a healthy eye, a good eye, and a bad eye. It's a matter of being generous or selfish. Having a generous eye means being free from the love of money and all the treasures that it can afford us here. Laying up treasure in the correct place. Having a miserly or a bad eye means laying up treasure here in this place to serve us here and to complete us here. And the way people handle their finances, it does affect every part of their lives. You can see it, can't you? You can see it. You can see it in your life, You can see it in the lives around you. This is what it says in Luke 12. You could turn there if you want to. If you don't have a Bible, it will be on the screen. This is Christ, he's giving another parable. It's one that you will recognize. It says, and he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Okay, just pause for a second. Don't you think the people around him saw where he was laying up his treasures? It was accommodating for the treasures of his life, and it was going to be obvious to everybody. Obvious in the fact that things were being torn down and built up. Obvious in the fact that there was going to be parties all the time. It's obvious. We read this, and we think that this is some extreme example. We, We think that this couldn't possibly be us, and we fail at reading the Bible accurately and honestly if we don't think that we are in that parable. I very easily, in my own way, in 2019, have the capacity to say, Done pretty well for myself. I think it's time to start storing up some treasure here to take care of me, to serve me, to complete me. I'm in this passage, so are you. So the two diagnostic questions I want you to carry on your dashboard, how does your heart respond to the threat of your treasure disappearing when it's threatened? The second one, what does the rest of your life look like around it? Now listen, if you feel any level of conviction right now, any, you're going to be tempted to do what a lot of us are tempted to do when we feel convicted over a sin, and that is try to fix it without Christ. We are very good at rolling up our sleeves and changing our performance in order to fix a problem that we see. We try to do it without Christ. We try to do it without the gospel, and this is another example of an area that we can do that in. What we'll do a lot of times, what I've seen as a pastor for the last 22 years anyway, is when people know that they're struggling with their treasure or the money that buys the treasure, what they will do is they will increase their charitable giving, but they will keep a hand on these idols that they're feeding the rest of their money to. They'll keep both. They're not approaching the heart at all. They're just increasing the outward giving of finances so that they feel less sleazy for having idols in their life, treasures that they're storing up here, right? Giving to a church or a ministry or a cause does not grant us permission to steal the rest of the money under our care, especially to provide for our own idol worship, does not. Because here's the thinking, and I've heard people say it right out of their mouth. I've listened to people say this. As long as I'm giving a bunch to the church, I could do whatever I want with the rest of my money. Wrong, wrong, wrong. It's not your money, first of all, wrong. If you struggle with this, by the way, ask yourself a hard question. Is it generosity that you're giving to the missionary or the ministry of the church, or is it a tax? A tax you pay so that you could do whatever you want with the rest of the money. You see, we don't just manage what we give, we manage everything else as well, even down to the utility bills. That's God's money as well. It's interesting when you think of it that way. It is a good question. It's an imperative question to say Am I giving charitably? Am I giving into the kingdom? A better question is, am I being generous and am I managing well all of the money that God owns? The totality of it. Am I good with all of it? What does the totality of your treasure management tell you today about your hopes and affections? You see, Jesus is saying, are you laying up treasure for yourself or are you being rich towards God? I know that's an odd phrase. This is where I'm getting it. I'm going back to that parable we just read. And we got this guy. He's blowing up his silos. He's building new ones. And he's parting. And God said to him in verse 20, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What does that even mean, to be rich towards God? Is God someone that we can enrich? Someone that we can contribute to? I mean, it's an odd phrase for sure, right? This is what it means to be rich towards God. It means to count him as your highest treasure, your highest reward. It means that if you were to give me a tour through your treasure vault, your hall of valuables, and you were to walk me by your accomplishments, your friends, your family, your things, your memories even, your spouse, your kids, all the things that you like and all the things that you love, to be rich towards God means to get to the place where you see God and you say, Him. He is my most valuable valuable. He is my richest rich. He is the eight, he's utmost to me, even above my spouse, even above my kids, even above my own life. He is my everything, above all. That's what it means to be rich towards God. Laying up treasures in heaven means being rich towards God. And whenever this, happen, whenever this happens, it changes and recalibrates how you handle the wealth of this world, the treasures of this world, the money of this world. And it's interesting where we see this. This is not just prescribed in the Bible. It's actually described. You guys have the opportunity to see it happen in real time. Because we have records of Paul writing. Paul says this to a very young church in uh, Colossae. So this church was probably the same size as our church. Young people. This is what he says about Jesus. He Verse 15, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. This is a passage about the preeminence of Christ. In fact, the whole book of Colossians is about the preeminence of Christ. It's the very first book that we went through as a church. We felt like that would be a good way to kick a church off. To talk about how Jesus is utmost and preeminent above all things. Above all things. Right? And here Paul is saying this. Yes, he's being carried along by the Holy Spirit. And he believes it too. (laughs) He believes this. He's bought in to this. If Paul was walking you through his valley of treasures, through his treasure chest... He would walk by all of his loves, all of his likes, all of his achievements, and he would get to Christ and he'd say, Jesus is my utmost above all things. He is my highest treasure. And I'm not just guessing. He tells us this. He says this in Philippians. Philippians 3, verse 7, Paul says to a different church, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ." Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Things he once treasured on this planet, he's calling garbage at this point. That's interesting. The old stuff that used to consume him, they didn't consume him anymore. And the shine didn't wear off of all these new things. The dopamine level did not drop because the treasures of this world became ordinary to him. It's because they became outcompeted to him. He had a preeminent value now. He had Christ. You see, Jesus is not just a treasure, but he's a treasure spent on us. It's an important piece of the gospel. Jesus is the image of an invisible God, just as he says in Colossians. He is the one that holds all matter together. And yet he comes himself to be spent fully, not just a treasure to be looked at, a treasure to be spent, poured out. And here's what's fascinating to me about the gospel. He doesn't treasure you because you're impressive, right? He doesn't do that. He doesn't even treasure us because we deserve to be treasured. Now that's something that the culture loves to spin, right? Right? You're valuable, and you deserve to be valued because you're valuable. You're a treasure, and you deserve to be treasured because you're awesome. Listen, come on now. He doesn't treasure us because we're awesome. He treasures us because he is awesome, because he is good, and he is great. So, in fact, when he found me, I was quite unimpressive. <laughs> Not very impre- Neither were you. You weren't impressive at all. Like I say earlier, he found us winding up and throwing rocks at him. That's how he found us. Not very impressive. And yet he values us. He treasures us. But even if all of that's true, how do we get to this place where Paul's at with treasures? I mean, really get there. Not get there for 20 minutes after a sermon like this to forget about it on Monday or Tuesday. How do we live in this place? How do we find God so beautiful and so valuable that he alone becomes our treasure, changing the way we handle our treasures here in this world, right? I'll be honest, for me, the more I think and meditate over this passage, I think we start by confession. Confess that we've been grooming our affections for treasures here simply because we just don't believe that God is that good. And if God is not that good, we'll just find good elsewhere and import it into our life we'll find good we're created to find good it's in us to find good and I think the second thing is we celebrate thankfully celebrate that God has great affections for us and then we beg the Holy Spirit to increase our affections for him did you know that you can pray for that by the way you can just ask God God will you increase my affections for you I know it sounds odd because we don't speak to each other like that, right? I don't walk up to somebody that I could kind of do without. Like if they're at the party, I'm fine. If they're at the party, but if they were gone, probably don't care either. I don't, I don't say, I don't walk up to that person and say, "Hey, listen, okay, I, I mean, I like you, <laughs> but we're never going to be bros. But maybe we could be. Could you help me like you more? Come on, that's weird, isn't it?" That's why we don't do that with each other. If you do do that with other people, stop. It's not helpful. (laughs) But did you know you could do that with God? God, I know you were the chief and the utmost and the preeminent of all values of the whole cosmos, the cosmos you created. We're in your sandbox, and you are beautiful above beauty itself. But my heart doesn't respond that way because it's broken. But Lord, help me love you more. Help me see you clearly. Help me nurture my affections for you above all. Did you know that the Holy Spirit will start to work on you? Did you also know that that's one of the most dangerous prayers you can pray? Because guess what he will do? He'll come after your treasure. He will straight up come after your treasure. He invested in us at a great cost. And now you and I, were are free. We're free to be generous in this place because it's not our home. And treasure is now redefined for us. Culture no longer has a foothold in your life telling you what will complete you. You've already been completed. There's nothing here that can rescue you. You've already been rescued. Treasures are nice. It's fun to have treasures, but your soul does not demand them in order to be integrated and whole. And this radically changes how we handle treasures in this big, broad land of rust and thieves. It changes. We can handle our treasures as perishable items as managers and not owners. We manage them for another's glory, not our own. This is what it means to be rich towards God, to be generous here. So we can use our resources to press back evil. Anytime you see evil, sin, decay, entropy happening in lives, you can invest your resources in that direction. When you see fruit bearing going in certain places, you can invest your resources and your energy in that direction because you're free to do it now. Employ all of your resources at all times for God's glory because you're free from the need. You've been, freed, you've been freed from the need to hoard treasures for yourself. You've been freed from blowing up silos and building new ones. You've been freed from this. We can handle treasure as a people not addicted to them, not controlled by them. Because we're virtually playing with house money That might be a phrase you're not familiar with if you've never been in a casino, right? You play with house money, it means you're playing and you're betting with money that you didn't bring in with you. You won just enough money to actually start betting with the money that you won. Yeah, psychology says you're gonna be much freer, much more liberal with the money you did not walk in with. I wouldn't know what this means Because anytime I've ever gone into a casino, I've walked right back out after like 20 minutes of losing what I walked in there with and said, this is it. This is all I'm spending. It only takes about 15 minutes to get through that, and then I'm out the door. Never had house money in my life, right? But I do believe psychology that says when it's not yours, you didn't walk in with it, you spend it a lot more liberally. It doesn't control you. Friends, that's what the Christian life is. We're playing with house money. It's not ours. We're managers for the great distributor of wealth. And how do we manage it? And how do we manage it? For his glory. For his glory. If you think, though, the treasure here will save you, you will be controlled by those resources. By the way, this is why saving money can be a sin for some of you. It can be a sin. Saving money can be biblical, responsible. It's a principle we see in the Bible. It can be... Uh, Something you're hiding behind because you're hoarding money. You're hoarding. You know, certainly, let me say again, it is responsible to save. But if we create a universe where God is not necessary because we've had so much money in our silos and in our barns and in our accounts and in our retirement vehicles, we're just living with a bad eye. A bad eye. I'm going to close with this passage. I love this passage. It's in Revelation 21. In fact, go ahead and stand with me. And this would be a great passage to. It's not really a doxology, but it's one to good. It's good to finish on. I'm going to be in. I'm going to go from verse 11 and jump to 18, so it'll be up on the screen. And this is the New Jerusalem described for you and me. The New Jerusalem. It says, having the glory of God, its radiance, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, agate, the fourth, emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. This city is made of treasure, made from the studs up, Constructed from treasure. John continues and he says, and I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of the Lord or the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Man, that's a cool description. It's going to be beautiful to us when we see this city, the new city that's far better than the first garden. When we see this new city built of treasure, we will appreciate the treasure and it won't control us. It won't tell us that we're incomplete. That treasure which is better than what any human has ever seen with their own eyes, it won't communicate to you that you don't have enough. It will do the opposite. Because even in this treasure-filled kingdom, our highest treasure will be the Lamb of God himself, who casts light so that there is no more shadow. (laughs) Think about that. No shadows. He is the lamp of God's glory, and it is such a brilliant lamp that it draws the kings of men to come from all stretches with their treasures to drop at his feet. And those two neurobiologists from London If they were to go to this place and run their tests, they'd no doubt find that everybody was hopped up on dopamine. If there is such a thing during that time, because we're surrounded by new and shiny things, novelty has found its limits, and we will be experiencing this reward forever. Forever. Not because of the new stuff around us, but because of the new king before us. And we can celebrate this This is how we celebrate it, we celebrate it now. Because what Christ is saying is there is a kingdom that we're going to literally made of treasure. But today, you're a city on a hill, unhidden. Today, you're a people like a light in the middle of a dark room. Today, you're a distinct people different from all other people. When we handle our treasures in a Christ-shaped method here, when we handle our treasures formed by the gospel, we point a big finger to this new Jerusalem, we show how sweet God really is. We are a Polaroid of what is waiting for us, right? So let me pray for you because I know I've already listed. There's a few places for us to repent in this. Take the passage like this seriously. So as we sing and as we pray, you'll have opportunity to repent, to ask the Holy Spirit to give you deeper affections for a better treasure. And listen, we have the, the elements back there. We have the bread. We have the juice. It's a fantastic time to pray about those while you're taking communion elements because it's an emblem. It's a symbol of how deep our treasure was spent on us. Right? So let me pray. Father, I thank you for being sweet to us, being sweet to us when we were not impressive, for being a treasure that is truly spent, expended, poured out to the last drop was your life. You did not hold anything back. You tackled the cross with a deep joy welling up inside of you for our benefit, for our benefit. You were the first, the primary, and the uber hero of our lives. But Lord, we admit as a church, our hearts don't always believe that you were that good. So we start searching for good We start listening to the treasures of this world and we start laying them up because we believe that they will complete us, that they will do what you can't do. So Lord, as a church, we turn from that. Lord, I as a pastor, I turn from that. We repent from saying you are not good, from just saying you are not good. Help us as a church. Help the churches of this city. Help us be in a place where the people far from you. They look at how we handle our treasure. They look at how we handle the money that we use to buy that treasure. And they see something different, something sweet. They see see hearts that are beholding the deepest treasure ever, our highest prize in you. So Lord, we adore you. Help us adore you more. We love you. Help us love you more. We have affections for you. Help us have deeper affections. You were so good to us and you were so kind and you were so gentle and thoughtful for us. And so Lord, we thank you. And as we enter worship, it's in your name that we sing. It's in your name that we pray. It's in your name that we take communion. in this time, it's in your name that we write checks. It's in your name that we tear down a mobile church and we hug necks. It's in your name that we have lunch together, that we tell jokes together. It's in your name that we rest. It's in your name that we write checks to pay for our utilities. It's in your name that we manage your money. It's in your name that we live this life. We love you and amen.